Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The life of Carlos Rafael conjures up images from another immigrant story. It's why he's known as the Codfather. You know, there were fishermen who admired him for his shrewd business acumen and others who resented him for his, his dubious dealings. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll learn about the man who dominated the port of New Bedford to become the biggest fisherman in New England. We'll also visit two city squares a few miles apart to survey the pressures of gentrification. It makes you feel really disengaged from the neighborhood and more and more like you're being squeezed on all sides. And with the arrival of spring, we'll talk about the adventurers who start their voyage up the Appalachian Trail from Georgia on the way to Maine, including one grandma who surprised the family. She dropped a postcard in the mail to her children saying, when I said walk, I meant I'm hiking 2,050 miles. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. In Boston Federal Court Thursday, Carlos Rafael, a man known as the Codfather, pled guilty to more than two dozen counts of fraud, stemming from a colorful career in which he dominated the New England fishing industry with a bravado he likened to the Al Pacino character Scarface. It's that bravado that finally brought him down. He'll be sentenced in June and could spend years in prison. Here to tell a story is Ben Goldfarb, who reported the deliciously fishy case of the Codfather for the Food and Environment Reporting Network in collaboration with Mother Jones Magazine. We spoke earlier this week in New Haven, Connecticut. Ben Goldfarb, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. So explain, first of all, who Carlos Rafael is. Where did he come from? So Carlos Rafael is, uh, he has this kind of amazing rags to riches story. He's the most powerful fisherman in New England and maybe even the country. He's a, a Portuguese immigrant who moved to the U.S. when he was 14 years old. He moved to New Bedford, worked in a sausage factory, uh, eventually a fish processing plant, gradually worked his way up. Um, and, uh, you know, within within a couple decades, he was the most powerful fisherman in, on the East Coast. He had a fleet of 40 boats that he used to fish for ground fish like cod and haddock and flounder and scallops. And uh, along the way, he also ran afoul of the law a few times. He wasn't entirely above board in his dealings. He, he served some time for uh, tax evasion. He was accused of mislabeling his fish. Um, he, he landed this illegal bluefin tuna. So, you know, he was um, so, uh, kind of a controversial figure in, in New England's fisheries. You know, there were fishermen who admired him for his shrewd business acumen and others who resented him for his uh, sort of his, his dubious dealings. Was it because of these shady dealings? Was it because of hard work? I mean, tell us a bit about the mix, the rise of this guy. Yeah, I think it was a combination of the two. There's no question he was a, a very shrewd businessman and admired by many of his peers for that reason. Um, but as, as was revealed in this IRS investigation, um, certainly illegal dealings were a big part of his rise. You know, as he, as he told 
undercover IRS agents. His business is valued on paper to the IRS at about $25 million, um, but its under-the-table value was $175 million. Um, so certainly his illegal dealings were a big part of his success. Maybe you could explain the, the place of, of New Bedford in the world of, of fishing. Obviously, this is a, a very important part of New England. Tell us a little bit about this place and how he influenced not just the fishing industry there, but up and down the East Coast. Well, New Bedford is the most valuable seafood port in America. The landings, the fish that come into New Bedford are are worth more than the fish anywhere else in the country. So it's a huge part of Massachusetts's economy, um, but it's also a declining part of the economy. You know, while, while the scallop fishery has remained fairly strong, the groundfish fishery, which was historically the most important fishery, cod in particular, has basically collapsed. Um, and many, many fishermen have gone out of business. Um, the fleet has shrunk dramatically. And Carlos Rafael, also known as the Codfather, uh, is one of the few players who's been big enough to survive this dramatic contraction. Take us through this labyrinth of these lies and evasions, because as you, as you said, it's not as though he was necessarily hiding some of his dirty dealings. In your report, you say he was saying out loud to people all the time, yeah, this is what I do and this is, this is how I do it. So tell us a story about, about how exactly he evaded, say, tax law. Yeah, I think I think that uh, one of the funny things about Carlos is that he just he loves to tell people how badly he's screwing them. You know, that's <laughs> he, he seems to take a lot of pleasure in in making sure everybody knows that he is the smartest guy in the room. Um, so basically, the the way that fisheries regulation is supposed to work is that the the fishing boats come in and they submit a report to the federal government to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, basically saying what they caught, what species they caught, how many pounds they caught. Um, and then the, the seafood dealerships submit their own reports also to the federal government saying how much they've taken in from the boats. So ideally, the, the federal regulators can use the fishermen's reports and the dealerships' reports to kind of corroborate each other, to make sure they match up. Um, but Carlos Rafael was exploiting this gigantic loophole, which is that he owned both the boats and the dealership. He was fully vertically integrated. And, um, and I just have to ask, how is that not illegal? If you're going to have this system, how can it possibly be that you'd let people have the boats and then also have the dealerships at the same time? Yeah, that seems like a, a very obvious uh, potential loophole, and it was one that, that Carlos exploited very, <laughs> very shrewdly. Um, so basically, he was he was mislabeling um, what he caught, and he was, so he was basically catching more valuable fish. He was mislabeling them as less valuable fish, as, as haddock, which is a fish that he owned a lot of quota for. So he was allowed to catch lots and lots of haddock. So he was catching rare fish that he wasn't allowed to catch much of, labeling them haddock, a fish that he was allowed to catch a lot of. And then he was selling them under the table as the more valuable fish to a, a guy in New York. Um, and the guy in New York gave him bags of cash, which Carlos called jingles. Um, and uh, it was it was really lucrative. He, he Eventually, the IRS got him for mislabeling uh, about 800,000 pounds of fish. How did the IRS catch him? How, how, did, how did this all come down? So it's really an amazing 
story. It's the the affidavit kind of reads like a like a crime novel. Um, so a couple of years ago, Carlos kind of let slip in the local media that he was going to sell his entire operation. He was you know he said he was sixty three years old. He was sort of ready to get out of the game, um, and. One day, these three Russians, or two Russians and their broker, show up at his warehouse, basically ready to to make a deal with him. Um, and he very eagerly tells them the entire way his operation runs, the whole fraud that he's that he's that he's running. Um, he explains it really readily, you know, just just lays it all out there for them. Um, and at one point, says, you know. You could be the IRS in here, and I'd, I'd be in I'd be in deep trouble. But the IRS wouldn't be smart enough to send to send Russians. Um, but as it turned out, those were undercover IRS agents posing as Russians um, who got his entire scheme uh, on tape. The people who get hurt in this story are small fishermen like the ones that you describe, and then also the entire seafood industry, seafood consumers. So let's take those off one by one. Let's start with the small fishermen. Talk about how uh, Carlos's system made it so that the smaller fishermen out of a port like New Bedford weren't able to make the money and the living that they could have been making. Well, Carlos is really, in, in many ways, Carlos took advantage of a system that was put in place by the New England Fishery Management Council. Uh, so in 2010, um, the council transitioned to a new system of management called catch shares. And basically the way that that worked was that they, they divided the whole fishery up like a big pie, and then they gave different fishermen different sized slices. So the fishermen who had caught the most in the past received the biggest slices. Um, and the fishermen who had, who, you know, who were on small boats who hadn't caught as much in the past received very small, spl- very small slices. So a lot of those small fishermen had no choice but to sell their slice to a bigger player like Carlos. Um, and, you know, so when, when this system began in 2010, Carlos was allocated about 9% of the total allowable catch in New England uh, for ground fish. And by 2013, just three years later, he was he was landing more than a quarter, a full quarter of the revenue uh, for ground fish in all of New England. And, and is this happening because he was pressuring these small fishermen into turning over their shares to him? Or was it because they just couldn't compete with such a big operator? Yeah, I think I think mostly the latter. You know, fishing is it's an expensive operation. You have to achieve a certain an economy of scale to make it worthwhile. You have to pay for the crew, for the ice, for the gas. Um, and if you're if you're only allocated a small slice of the pie, uh, it's hard to compete. So I think I think a lot of these fishermen, look, some some of them were eager to get out. Uh, they were at retirement age and ready to sell their slice and cash out. And others, you know, basically had no choice uh, but to sell out to somebody like Carlos. And of course, this all comes with the overlay of a uh, of, of fishery that is collapsing in many ways. So how did how did that impact all of this? The fact that uh, because of these catch shares, because of the smaller allowable catches, you had an industry that was really crumbling at the same time that you had these older guys wanting to sell their boats and you had this one major operator who was more than more than ready to take up some of these shares. Right. So I think that's a really good point that, that the problem wasn't catch shares per se. It was catch shares coming at a time when fish... I mean, the, I mean, the reason the catch shares were put into place was because the, the fish stocks had already been just dramatically depleted over many, many centuries, right? I mean, cod is down to something like 3% of its historic levels. Um, so, you know, catch shares came in tandem with these really dramatic and necessary, frankly, catch limits that were designed to recover these, these fish stocks. Um, but those catch limits uh, basically forced a lot of these fishermen to receive really small shares. So, 
you know, catch shares isn't itself the problem. I mean, the real problem is is centuries of overfishing, um, but certainly the measures to alleviate overfishing were somewhat draconian and could have been better planned in advance. This catch share system that was instituted in New England, it didn't work the same way in other fisheries, though. Explain how it worked, say, out west and, and how it allowed for a little bit more dispersal of the fishing industry than than we have here in New England, where it seemed to be just concentrated with, with people like Carlos. Right. So the way that many catch share systems work um, is that when they're put into place, there's, there are also measures put into place to prevent the kind of concentration that occurred in New England. So, for example, uh, some fisheries have an accumulation limit where no fisherman can own more than, let's say, 2% of the total allowable catch. In other fisheries, they take, a, they take a slice of the pie and they set it aside for small boats or for young fishermen or for people who weren't grandfathered into the system. Um, in other fisheries, they say that to, to fish your share, you have to be on the boat yourself. You have to be physically on the boat. So these are various ways that you have of, of sort of dispersing the fishing power and creating a more equitable system. But in New England, none of those controls were put into place. Uh, it was sort of the Wild West, um, which is what allowed Carlos to, to get as big as he did. Other fisheries have taken steps to prevent that sort of thing. It, it seems as though that, that one that you mentioned, which... I don't know, to, to a layperson sounds like a very reasonable idea indeed, that the person who has the share actually needs to be on the boat. That could alleviate some of the very problems that we're talking about here and would make people have skin in the game to get into the fishing business. Right. It's it. I guess the question is how different an industry is fishing, right? I mean, if somebody owned six hardware stores, you know, you wouldn't make him be in every single hardware store at all times, right? Um, but fishing is kind of a different industry because, you know, in in many ways, having a a really dispersed fishery is 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 a very good thing. You know, it's it's uh, it's really good for ports, right? I mean, the more fishermen there are, the more gear businesses there are and the more ice businesses there are you know it's in some ways optimal economic efficiency in fishing is actually not optimal uh, not and it's not an optimal social situation you know it's in some ways it's it's good to have lots of little boats um that that to an economist would look inefficient compared to you know a couple of big boats with only a couple of crewmen on them who are catching all of the fish how important is this problem that uh, carlos rafael sort of brought to our attention, although clearly it's been happening for, for years and with many other people, that fish is mislabeled. And, and how worried should we be about eating the wrong fish? Yeah, something like 20% of the fish that is sold worldwide is mislabeled. So it's a, it's a huge problem. And obviously, you go into, a, you go into a, a supermarket and you look at the seafood counter, you know, and most of what you see is just white fillets, right? You have really no idea of, of knowing where that's coming from. Uh, so I think, it's a, I think it's a big issue. Um, but it's also an issue that not, lots of people and groups are working on. You know, there are all kinds of DNA tests, for example, that are popping up that, that can sort of help determine the origin of a, of a piece of fish. Um, but certainly it is, it is a big issue and one that, one that we should be worried about. And, that, you know, and that's, that's another reason to support your local fishermen. I mean, you know, you can go to the dock or go to a farmer's market um, to a, a place where you know, you, you know what you're getting, right? It's not, it's not like you're getting some piece of, of tilapia that, or whatever that comes from halfway around the world. It's, you know, it's, it's fish that you can see coming off a boat. How, how in trouble is New England's fishery? Do you think? Uh, I think it's in well, I, th I, I think it's in deep trouble. But I think that it it I think it depends on the fish that you're talking about. You know, if um, 
So certainly cod is in very, very deep trouble. The big problem with cod is that is that cod is really a northern fish that in New England is kind of at the southern range of its of its envelope. And as the climate warms, uh, they're going to be pushed further and further north until they're really no longer available uh, to New England fishermen. So cod, you know, which is really the fish that built the Northeast, um, is in very deep trouble. But then there are all of these other these other fish like dogfish and black sea bass that are sort of flourishing in, in these warm new waters. Um, and if we can learn to eat those fish and fishermen can make a sustainable living off them, then these guys could do pretty well. Mm. So to finish up our story about uh, Carlos Rafael and the, and the impact, I mean, wh- what happens now that someone who's known as the Codfather um, ends up with all these charges, maybe ends up going away and getting out of the business? I mean, how much does that affect anything or, or does it really? Does it change anything? Well, I think that the big question now is what is going to happen to all of the fishing permits and quota that Carlos owns? Uh, how that stuff is, that property is dispersed is going to be very contentious, and that could really shape the future of this industry. Um, you know, the mayor of New Bedford wants to keep all of that, all of those permits in New Bedford, um, where they've created lots of jobs over the years. But other fishermen from around around the East Coast think, you know, hey, this Carlos's operation affected all of us, and this this these permits and quotas should be available to everybody. You know, the, the proposal that's on the table that I, I like the most um, is the idea of using the, that quota to create a quota bank um, where you set, that, you set that property aside and say, okay, we're going to use this allocation to help the small-scale fishermen and the new fishermen, you know, the crewmen who are ready to buy their own boat, the people who have been most disadvantaged by regulations and by overfishing, um, you know, we're going to help them out. And if, if Carlos's property can be used to that end, it could be sort of a new dawn for the, for the, the industry. Uh, ben Goldfarb reported the deliciously fishy case of the Codfather for the Food and Environment Reporting Network in collaboration with Mother Jones Magazine. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. Coming up, the tale of two city squares, Harvard and Eggleston, only a few miles, but worlds apart. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. For Harvard Square neighbors bemoaning the loss of independent businesses to rising rents, the latest blow hit last weekend. On March 26th, the 150-year-old Schoenhoff's Foreign Books on Mount Auburn Street closed its brick-and-mortar location, moving to online-only sales. Upscale retail chains continue to pour into the square from D.C.-based Kraft Pizza to Swedish outdoor apparel. Long-term residents are worried that Harvard Square has become so commercial that it's losing what makes it special. At the center of the latest controversy is the historic Abbott Building at 5 JFK Street. It houses the world's only Curious George store, and it's also the former home to NPR's Car Talk. Yeah, the Dewey Cheatham and Howe sign is still in the window. The developer bought the Abbott and its two adjoining buildings last year for $85 million and plans to turn them into a mall. But the mollification of the square started decades ago. About five miles south, a historically Latino and African-American neighborhood, Eggleston Square, is experiencing rapid gentrification. Residents in the city are mulling over, sometimes butting heads over, how much affordable housing to require and what the mix of businesses is going to look like. 
Today we're going to revisit a conversation we had in January that we like to call A Tale of Two Squares. I'm joined by Louis Cronin, who grew up in Harvard Square and worked there as a producer for Car Talk. Her first novel, Everyone Loves You Back, is set in Cambridge. Also joining me is Luis Cotto. He's the executive director of the nonprofit Eggleston Square Main Street. For years, he was a community activist in Hartford, Connecticut. Louis and Luis, welcome to Next. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to start with you, Louis, and I'd like you to describe Harvard Square, but not the Harvard Square that you grew up in or the one that you've known for so many years. Describe Harvard Square right now through your eyes. Oh, boy. I mean, really, it feels just like a mall. Your first impressions are mall stores, and it's that sort of heart-sinking feeling of, oh, God, here's a gap, here's a Ann Taylor, all the same stores that you see in a mall. And that's not the Harvard Square that you that you knew for your whole life. What, what was that Harvard Square like? The Harvard Square I grew up in was this totally eccentric place where there were stores that you never found anywhere else that were completely different. Like sometimes they were really expensive, but they were eccentric. There was the drugstore that had this world-famous perfume counter and sort of became more of a perfume store. And there was antique stores, a head shop. Also, there were bookstores on every corner. There were so many bookstores there. And there were cheap places for students to eat. And my dad owned a restaurant that was like a student bar kind of place. And it was just an eccentric, interesting place. Luis, I want to ask you about the square where you work, Eggleston Square. Maybe you can describe what what the square is like right now, the Eggleston that you work in. Sure. Eggleston Square is a micro-neighborhood in in Boston that straddles um, Jamaica Plain and Roxbury. It has its name because when there was an elevated orange line down Washington Street, it was a major hub stop. That came down in 87, and now the uh, Southwest Corridor houses the orange line that goes all the way up to Forest Hills. The Eggleston Square that exists now and has ex- existed in its current state for about about two decades is a hyper-local retail mix, basically servicing the immediate residents. So we have your fair share of just like Ethnic restaurants, in this case, is Dominican, so a lot of Dominican restaurants, you know, the pizza place, and then you have the Chinese food takeout. We do have one outlier, which is a wonderful starfish market that everybody is jealous of. It's a regional destination for people, and a lot of barbershops and salons and nail salons. But um, again, that tends to to get more of a regional, a regional crowd, but the population is of color, um, mostly Latino, African-American, and uh, it's a good mix of 40, 30, 30, I would say, Latino, uh, mostly Dominicans, African-American, and white. And then the white is slowly growing as Eggleston mm-hmm. becomes um, more gentrified or more uh, attractive to people. Talk about that, that idea of gentrification and what it means to Eggleston Square, both, I suppose, Luis, in the in the positive and in the negative connotation of that? You know, gentrification, every, everyone has their own definition, but uh, it's the changing of a neighborhood and mostly caused by an influx of more affluent population. And, and normally you'll see this in big cities, it equates to displacement of a poorer of color population. And, and what we see, what 
what we're seeing in Eggleston is, you know, the consequence of that is is higher rent prices, which um, has be, have become astronomical. So what you'll see, the primary architectural style in Eggleston and most of Boston is the triple-decker. And uh, you'll have a triple-decker that has two bedrooms on the first floor, three bedrooms, three bedrooms. And those used to be family apartments. Mm. And what you see now is that, you know, you have a three-bedroom. They'll go for upwards of a 2400 because you'll get three working adults because that's the only way they'll be able to afford that. Um, but if you think of that density in the neighborhood that's built a lot of triple-deckers, you know, in a city that doesn't do parking bans in the winter, mm-hmm. you know, how many, you went from three families, possibly two cars, to eight adults, possibly four cars, three cars, in this, you know, very concentrated neighborhood. And that density and the, the traffic and the parking, everything that goes with that is severely affected. It, it sounds like a, a problem both of gentrification in the sense of local people being priced out of the neighborhood, but it also seems to be, Luisa, a quality of life issue for those who are there. If you have this hyperdensity with a lack of parking and many people who are living together but not related, it really does change the nature of a place, and it almost feels, with those prices and with that type of density, a little bit unsustainable. Am I reading that right? I don't know if it's unsustainable. You'll, you know, you're in Boston, and you'll always be able to find a working adult who, who can afford eight hundred dollars to to rent with people in them. You'll see a lot of turnover, but uh, there are wonderful people, wonderful artists who are. That's the only way they're able to make ends meet. Live with four or five other people, and then as long as you can get those people to to buy into the vision of a grander community, you can make really wonderful stuff happen. Louis, can you talk about that issue of affordability and how that has changed Harvard Square? I mean, it's not just about the Ann Taylors and the mall stores, as you say, coming in, but it's become a a very expensive place to live as well. Oh, yeah. I lived within walking distance of Harvard Square. And when I first moved there, like Louise says, there were lots of artists and writers who lived around. And in fact, there was a building down the street from me that they said, oh, that's the writer's building. And I lived there for like 18 or 19 years. And during those years, I watched one writer after another be priced out of that building. And, you know, there would be new people coming in who were just much more affluent. They always had a designer dog with them. You know, it was, it changed the tenor of the neighborhood. And the other thing it did was in terms of while I was living there, the pressure you felt to keep up was really difficult. Like I I would go out and mow my lawn and people in my neighborhood would come over and say, I'll lend you some more equipment if you'd like to trim back those bushes or people giving me gardening and landscaping advice and stuff because they wanted us to keep it up better. It was How incredible helpful. pressure. It makes you feel really disengaged from the neighborhood and more and more like you're being squeezed on all sides. Louise, in in Eggleston Square, with more people coming in from the outside, because it's a a desirable uh, neighborhood, you see more gentrification, more white residents. Are you seeing any tension between uh, the Dominicans, the African-Americans who've lived there for, for decades, and some of the newcomers who are coming into the neighborhood? I've seen tension, but I got to tell you, in the three years I've been there, 
Not as much as one would think. I could probably name the times that it's been in my face, you know, on one hand. Um, I actually had one person as I removed the beer can from a merchant's a merchant's sill and asked them, like, you know, it was in a brown paper bag and said, you got to take this elsewhere. The guy said to me, you know, you guys come from out, outside and, and tell <laughs> us what to do. <laughs> I'm looking at him going, did you just call me a gentrifier? <laughs> but, um... But no, I think uh, again, part of our part of uh, what we do at Eggleston Square Main Street is create these community building opportunities for people who otherwise don't know each other to come in one space. Whether it's uh, poetry, whether it's music, whether it's uh, film nights, and one thing we try to always do is say beforehand or at the intermission, if you will, just introduce yourself to someone you you otherwise don't know. You know, people get into their silos and they might not know the Dominican family, you know, two houses down. Another tension I want to ask you both about, and maybe Luis, I'll start with you, is this idea of of preservation versus progress, right? You want to find some things about a community that you want to preserve, whether or not it's the the mix of different ethnicities and nationalities who live there, restaurants, stores, things that people in the neighborhood can can afford and love, but then also some sort of progress so that you are making the streets safe and clean and fun for people visiting from all over. Talk about striking that balance with the organizations you work with and and how you view that idea of of preserving a place while still wanting it to move forward and and be better every day. It's a great question. Eggleston Square and, and JP is going through a corridor study zoning process right now. Most of the parcels along Washington Street are light industrial, so you'll see a lot of garages and empty spaces that were, you know, light manufacturing. So we're in the process, I think, in the next five years of seeing a lot of building and a lot of uh, new retail opportunities. What we don't want to see, to go to your question, is that filled with all what you just termed as the progress businesses. I don't want to wake up one day and see that you can point a line, draw a line between where they are, right? And then where, you know, we are and where they are, whether Mm. it's preservation and progress. So I think looking at a mix of businesses where it's sprinkled and then have newer businesses so that everybody, you know, everyone who would go to, I don't know, the taqueria, you know, would also flow to the barbershop and and or the Dominican restaurant. So that's something we're kind of very intentional about, making sure that when there are new developments that current businesses have an opportunity to expand if they if they want. And do you have to, because I was thinking about this with Harvard Square, the new development they're proposing, it's going to be a mall, right? And, right? and they're going to keep the facade, which is good. But what I think they need to do is they need to keep some of the iconic stores that have managed to survive, that say Harvard Square, that say this right. is special, you know, like the Curious George store. One, you know, it's the only one in the world, and it's very Harvard Square, and it's a great place. But it's like, how is it going to afford it? Like, right. how are you going to make it so that those smaller businesses can afford Eggleston Square? Well, those in Harvard Square, you're looking at about $35 to $40 a square foot over there and these new developers who bought that building and the two adjoining it paid about $85 million. Right. 
I have a nine-year-old boy. The Curious George store is like the only thing he knows. Right. Um, that and the sand park in at the Common, right at the oh, that's Cambridge a great Common. Park. But that is slated in the new design to be gone, and it's going to be an elevator and stairs. When you pay that much and you're looking to do a total gut rehab, what's going to be the end the end uh, possibilities for for local independent businesses. But and that's one of the most interesting things about studying squares in in Boston and Cambridge or all across the the cities and towns of New England is that they're meant to be places where people live and where people shop and visit the destinations and also where people work and you have to take all of those things into account. I, I guess I'm wondering Louis about about that that mix of ideas about what a Harvard Square and Eggleston Square should look like. Where should it all come from? Because you have to honor those people who who live there and call a community home. I suppose you have to honor people who are going to bring $85 million to want to redevelop something. But it, it means so many things to so many different people. How do you how do you decide on the future of something that has all of these competing interests at, at, at stake? You know, the city itself or the community itself has to say, this is who we are, and this is what's important to us. It has to be mindful, because if you just let the market determine it, the market will just go for as much money as possible. And if you just let maybe the people who are there, they will certainly vote for it, like, you know, keep our rent low, keep this low. So, you you know, I think it has to be a sort of partnership, but done by the city itself. I, I don't know if you do things like, you know, a progressive city steps in and says, we're going to figure out a way to subsidize Curious George. Cambridge is in the enviable position of being a wealthy, wealthy city, and it should be investing in preserving what makes it cool, what makes it Cambridge. And I think you're seeing some evidence of that with a uh, with the kiosk, because the kiosk yeah. is at risk of... of being gone at the historical kiosk right in a Harvard Square, and uh, they've delayed any any selection of any developing group just so they can have more options, more community-led options of what can happen with that. And I think that's what um my answer to this question is. You know, each square has to see who in spirit is their family, right? So, like Harvard Square is is a Cambridge treasure. So a vision should be that Cambridge, both at the municipal level but also with its residents, gets to say this is what we want our Harvard Square to look like. To look like. Similarly, Eggleston Square is hyper-local. It's not regional. So, mm-hmm. so the people in the immediate community, if I was to be asked what a vision would be, my vision would be an education process amongst the local community to help guide the vision for that neighborhood and not have a reactionary process where you're you're reacting to a developer's vision of what they want to do when the bottom line is, you know, money. Luis, you mentioned that you walk a couple blocks to to Harvard Square. You live in Cambridge, right? Yes. I I um <laughs> I live in Central Square, Cambridge. Yes, we've been there for going on 5 years now. And what's what's Central Square like these days? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of changes there since since I lived in Boston back in the early 90s. I'm a big fan of Central Square. I love the mix of uh, money. And by money, I mean you'll have like a thrift store next to 
the dance complex next to a jazz place next to mm-hmm. you know the the check cashing place similarly i i have to admit that i like i didn't feel community until i started working at eggleston walking wow. the neighborhood and seeing families playing dominoes outside seeing a man playing a guitar in the porch and you know and I asked him if I could sit down he said sorry he offered me a beer not to say no one's kind in Cambridge but it's just different and so Louie you you grew up in in and around Harvard Square you wrote a book about about Cambridge where do you live <laughs> I live in Jamaica Plain <laughs> and I actually was priced out of Cambridge I went over to JP because I had friends living in Jamaica Plain saying it's more affordable. So in a way, I'm part of the gentrifying problem of, of Jamaica Plain because I came over with Cambridge prices in my head. And then I saw JP and I was like, great. Do you feel the sort of sense of community there that, that Luis was talking about? I do, but it's going. I used to feel it, like I've been in JP now for about 10 years, and when I first got there, there was such a a feeling of community, and the neighbors, you know, we spoke to one another. It was very, very diverse, and it's totally changed in 10 years. Like, I used to be very good friends with my next-door neighbor, and he left, and they put in three condos, three townhouses, and they each went for near, nearly a million dollars. To the point of these condos coming into the Eggleston Square area, Luis, I know that the city of Boston has talked a lot about wanting to maintain affordability for neighborhoods like this. Do you think that they're, that they're serious about this, that they're really making an effort to try to keep, keep it affordable? I do. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Sheila Dillon, who's the chief of, of housing in the city, but I think uh, we're dealing at Eggleston with the theory of supply and demand, mm-hmm. that the triple-deckers are so high because there's not enough, there, there are not enough units. So how can we get more units to balance that? And then within the new developments, make sure there's a healthy mix of, of affordability. Mm-hmm. And Jamaica Plain has been at the forefront citywide of pushing for 20% affordability. They've rarely gotten it, and there right now is a huge movement for this new planning study to push the city on its affordability. The mayor doubled down on their 13 15% affordability last winter, but the city is doing some really um, interesting, innovative things to make sure that people who are displaced are first in lottery to get something in Eggleston, and they're putting incentives in for developers who buy market rate spaces and promise to keep it affordable. So I do believe that the city, you know, that they want to practice what they preach. I just wish the base was a little higher. Louis Cronin works for PRI's The World. Her new novel set in Harvard Square is called Everybody Loves You Back. Louise Coto is the executive director of Eggleston Square Main Street. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you so much. Louis Cronin's new novel, set in Harvard Square, is called Everybody Loves You Back. Louis and Luis joined us from the studios at WGBH in Boston. Since we're talking about interesting, diverse places to live, our columnist Susan Campbell is trying to help a young Connecticut couple 
find a diverse neighborhood of their own. That couple's getting closer to finding a new home. You can read about them at nextnewengland.org. Just click on Opinion. Coming up, a hike up the Appalachian Trail. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. If you spend any time walking in the woods, you'll see a lot of strange-looking trees, trees that are shaped by the wind or split by lightning. And occasionally, some twists and turns are man-made. New England Public Radio's John Vosey has our story. Walking in the woods near his Putney, Vermont home, Dan Kubik discovered a most unusual tree. Top to bottom is probably about 60 feet, 70 feet maybe. That's not the unusual part. It goes up about 9 feet straight up and then at a 90 degree angle goes out about another 8 or 9 feet before going directly up again. This two to 300 year old sugar maple is believed to be the first Native American trail tree discovered in Vermont. Trail trees, or trail marker trees, were intentionally shaped by Native Americans to mark trails or to point to graves, sacred sites, or water. So if a Native is out hunting or going somewhere and they need to know where water is located, these trees often pointed to water sources. Don Wells is with the nonprofit Mountain Stewards in Georgia. He oversees the National Trail Tree Project, an initiative to locate, document, and preserve these pieces of living history. What they did is they would take a sapling and then they would bend it horizontally, lock it down with tie-downs for maybe a year or two for it to lock into that horizontal position. Then they would come back and bend up the tree vertical which would then make a pointer. Wells has a database of over 2,000 trail trees in 41 states. We have gone across the nation and we have interviewed the Native American elders about these trees. Now, these are very sacred to them, and for a long time they would not talk about them. But Wells wants to talk about them and get them protected under federal law. He says urban development throughout New England probably destroyed many Native American trail trees. In rural New York, there are hundreds, but the one discovered by Dan Kubik in southern Vermont is one of only four in New England, with others in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. You might know someone who's gone out looking for themselves along the Appalachian Trail. This year marks the 80th birthday of the 2,100-mile footpath that goes from Georgia to Maine. A third of the trail runs through New England, including some of its most rugged parts, ending at the summit of Mount Katahdin in Maine. This is the time of the year when thru-hikers traditionally get started on the trail down south. Emma Grandma Gatewood made headlines when she became the first woman to hike the entirety of the AT back in 1955. She was 67 years old, and she wore keds. Writer Ben Montgomery, Emma's great-great-nephew, tells her story. In uh, 1955, she told her family that she was going on a walk, and she left her small hometown of Gallipolis, Ohio, and journeyed to Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia. She told no one what she meant by taking a walk. 
until she hit about Roanoke, Virginia, and she dropped a postcard in the mail to her children saying, when I said walk, I meant I'm hiking 2,050 miles. She was, uh, you know, born into poverty in southeastern Ohio, got married at the age of 18 to a guy named P.C. Gatewood. She very quickly learned that P.C. had an insatiable sexual appetite. She bore him 11 kids total and also quite the temper. He abused her to no end. Nobody remembers exactly what set the fight off. Her son Nelson, who was a teenager at the time, about 15 years old, he, he comes in and finds his father on top of his mother. He's broken her ribs, he's broken her teeth. Um, her ear is ripped from her face. Nelson sees this and grabs his father, pins his arms against his sides for long enough that Emma could run away. PC went to town and Emma eventually returned to the house. When PC came back, he was trailed by a constable or a sheriff's deputy or some keeper of the peace. As soon as PC opened the screen door to go inside the house, Emma hurled a five pound sack of flour that connected squarely with his face. She first read of the Appalachian Trail in a doctor's office in the early 50s. She had just picked up a copy of a 1949 National Geographic magazine. It was a multi-page color photograph spread of uh, the Appalachian Trail with this very rosy picture of the trail and said, you know, anybody in decent physical shape could quote, hayfoot, strawfoot from Georgia to Maine. This turned her on. She had always been a pedestrian. She never knew how to drive a car. So anytime she wanted to uh, go visit a friend, it was nothing to walk. 13, 14, 15 miles. She was hung up on the idea of trying out this, what at the time was a very new footpath. She wound up having this hilarious meeting with these gangsters from Harlem on the AT in the Green Mountains of Vermont. She's hiking along and she finds herself in severe rain. She needs a place to stay for the night and she hikes up on this uh, lean-to beside the trail. A lean-to is just a three-sided structure. Inside the lean-to, she finds, as she describes in her diary, um, eight African-American youths and their two white leaders from a Catholic parish in Harlem. She is gonna have to hole up for the night with the kids and the, and the Catholic leaders. She's in the corner and one of the boys is laying next to her and he keeps in his sleep throwing his arm over her. She'll move it back. He'll throw it again and she'll move it back and he'll throw it back over. But it turns out she had no idea, but um, one of the Catholic leaders wrote about this just before his death and he said that uh, it was 1955 in Harlem and the gangs were fighting over every square inch of concrete. The summer was hot. It was a lot of bloodshed, maybe the most violent place in America at the time. 
the leader of the church said, we've got to do something about this. And so this uh, young priest got the assignment, like, I want you to identify the top four honchos of each of these two rival gangs and take them on an all-expense-paid trip to the Green Mountains of Vermont so that y'all can broker peace. And those are the people that Emma wound up uh, bunking with, the eight toughest <laughs> gangsters in, in, in Harlem. When she set off, she didn't tell anybody. She thought her kids might try to stop her. She thought somebody might try to harm her on the trail. Around Roanoke, Virginia, the newspaper caught up with her. Basically, a couple of guys who maintained the trail heard that she was hiking, and they informed the, the paper, and the paper shows up, and they do a, a story. From there on, just about every town that she walked through, there was a newspaper story to the point where the United Press and the Associated Press were tracking her movements for pretty much the entirety of the last half of the trail, maybe on a weekly basis until she got to the end, until she hit Maine. And then it was like a daily update that was running in pretty much every newspaper in the United States. She started to get annoyed by reporters. She was like, I'm done with photographs. And I think she was self-conscious in that she wasn't looking all that great at the end of a 2,000-mile walk. But this one photographer pops out of the bushes or <laughs> whatever and starts taking her picture, and she was having none of it. She just she whacked him. She apologized immediately after she did it. She said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't know what's going on. And somebody brought her a lawn chair and a glass of milk and a hamburger, and she took a break and felt better about it. I think she was sort of reaching her wit's end, you know, and certainly losing her patience with the press. 146 days after she started, she uh, climbed Mount Katahdin in Maine and sang the first verse of uh, America the Beautiful and said, I did it. There's something about Mount Katahdin in Maine. I've heard people say it's the first spot in the United States where the, s the sun hits when it rises in the east. It's barren on top of that mountain, no trees, and this incredibly strong wind that blows all the time. Trying to reach the crest of Mount Katahdin is like a, a sort of solitary experience. It's almost like we're not supposed to be here. I think she was pretty overcome by like the significance of it and the aloneness of it. Well, I wish I was watching that old sunrise top of mountain so high. Ben Montgomery's book, Grandma Gatewood's Walk, came out in paperback last year. That story was produced by Elliot Rambach for This Land Press. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Lori Mack. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill, and you can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.